All right, church. Well, today is a significant day in the Word of God for us. Now, to be clear, though, and let me preface it with this, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. However, not all Scripture carries the same historical weight. And what I mean by that is not all Scripture describes why the world is the way it is in the same way. And so today, as we continue in our study in the book of Genesis, we are approaching, and going to be in today, one of the most important texts in all of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, which will be in page 2 if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles. Because I don't know if you remember, but when we began this study in the book of Genesis a few weeks back, I propose that the book of Genesis actually attempts to answer some of those most important questions that we think about, that we ask of who is God, right? Who are we? Why are we here? What is my purpose in life? In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 have been answering those questions. But in Genesis chapter 3, we're actually going to get to a, a question that I think most of us ask in times of great difficulty, great pain, maybe great suffering. And that is the question of why is this happening? Or why do I do the things I do when I know I shouldn't do those? Why do they do the things they do even when they know that it's wrong? It's a question that the original audience, the Israelites, were asking, and I think it's a question that we still ask to this day. I think especially after reading Genesis 1 and 2, right? We've been walking through this, this perfect created world, this perfect relationship between God and humanity, humanity in all of creation. No strife, no issues, no obstacles. And yet, we would all say, that's not my reality today. Work is hard. Relationships are hard. My relationship with God is hard. What I read in Genesis 1 and 2, I do not experience to this day, Pastor. I have messed up this week. I've done things. I have said things. I have thought things. So today we're going to see why that is the way it is. And we're going to see how sin, that's really what we're introducing here in chapter 3, why sin has come into this world. Genesis chapter 3 talks about the original sin. Original sin. And not just an old sin, but a sin that's actually broken or fractured this relationship with God, this relationship with each other, this relationship with this world, far more than just Adam and Eve. In fact, what happens here in Genesis 3 has cracked all the way to this very day. We still see the consequences of it. We still see the same results. But church, hear me on this, though. Today, we will also see the plan of redemption. We will also see the plan of God to renew and repair that cracking, that sin, that brokenness. And ultimately, we will see that sin or evil never gets the last word. It doesn't. God does. So we're going to see that through chapter 3. But I'm going to go ahead and just stop there for a moment. I want to pray one more time. I want to pray for you. 
pray for our kiddos in the room next door. And as I'm doing that, I would just ask that you pray for me. So let's go ahead and do that together. Well, Father, before we actually read uh, these, these precious words that we have through your scriptures, I just want to take another moment just to acknowledge that we are in desperate need of you this morning. Desperate need of you to illuminate, to highlight, to clarify who you are and what you have done. And God, we're thankful that we have this word to communicate all of that to us. That we're not left just to fill in the gaps of our own understanding or, or propose our own solutions to the problem of sin. But we can rest knowing that you are good and gracious and perfect God. Not only knows about sin, not as surprised by sin, but has been making this plan and fulfilling this plan of redemption from the very beginning. God, I also want to just pray for our kiddos and our teachers next door. As they are looking at this same text, and even our, our, the littlest of minds and the littlest of hearts here in the building this morning need to know, God, what you have done, what you have said, what you have promised, and how all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. So Lord, we need your help with that. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be at. And I'm just going to go ahead and just read through the whole chapter this morning. And then we'll look at a couple of different sections. So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent also said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, we're thankful for God's word. All right. So chapter 3 begins with a stark contrast to how chapter 2 ended. Right? If you just took, look a little bit left in your Bible, you will see that chapter 2 ended with the sense of marital bliss. And most importantly, Moses pointed out that they were naked and not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Now all of that is about to change. In verse 1, we are introduced to a new character in the garden, a serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field, it says. Now, a couple of things to point out is, immediately, the original audience would have leaned into the words of Moses as he spoke them. Because a serpent or a snake in that day, much like it is in our day, they were hated. They were dangerous creatures. And specifically for these Israelites, as they were wandering in the desert, a bite from a poisonous snake was a very threat to their survival. It would have likely resulted in death. And so they, they knew the dangers of a snake. But we're quickly given some clues that this was no ordinary snake, was it? This snake could talk. Right? That's different. This snake knew about God. Now, later in the Bible, we're actually informed a little bit more about this snake. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the Bible refers to Satan as that great ancient serpent, pointing to that this snake in the garden was actually a mouthpiece of Satan himself. Now, Satan is a created angelic being that at some point in history rebelled against God, and he was cast out from the realm of heaven. Now, truthfully, I don't know if I'm doing hitting something, Tabor, but. Now, truthfully, we don't really know a whole lot about when this rebellion happened or some of the greater details of it, nor do we actually know how did Satan end up taking on this serpent and how did the serpent end up in the garden? We just don't know. And I don't think it's really the point of the story to know those greater details. Because the point, will, I think, will become abundantly clear of, but what did, this, what did Satan do? What did the serpent do? What did it mean for humanity? 
So we don't know much about how Satan ended up in the garden, but he is there. He's there. And he immediately begins to do the work that he has been doing since that very first day. And what is that work? What is the work of this great enemy? It's to undermine the goodness of God. It's to undermine the goodness of God, to incite rebellion, to challenge and to lie about the word of God. The very things that we see here in Genesis 3, the same things that we will see even to this day. Now I know, in our Western context, right, when we talk about evil or evil beings, we, you know, we go, is that, is that real? Is this not this kind of, sort of mythological lore? Well, what I'd like to propose to you is one that's not, and it's not primarily because the Bible communicates that it's not. And we should take note of that. That there's often more going on than we tend to admit. And we need to take note of this, the schemes of this great enemy that Satan has. That he will do whatever it takes, church, he'll do whatever it takes to incite this rebellion against God and his word. And even though the context, right, in the context of that rebellion and evil may change throughout history, his tactics do not. The general game plan has never changed from the very first day that we see here in Genesis 3. So pay attention then to what, what is it that Satan uses to allure the heart and the mind of these individuals made in the image of God to turn their backs on their very creator. And here in the first section this morning, verses 1 through 7, is our first section of dialogue and action. So verse 1, it says, Satan approaches Eve, and they begin to have a conversation about the word of God, right? And what are the very first words out of Satan's mouth is, did God really say, or did God actually say? It's the oldest trick in the book, right? A doubting of what God said, a doubting of his character. Now take note, uh, three times in this passage, you actually see the word of God quoted in verses 1 through 7. But all three times it's quoted inappropriately or quoted untruthfully. Now the first one is one we just kind of looked at. is by Satan when he said, Did God really say, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Which wasn't true. Which wasn't true. If you actually look back, you will see that, that God didn't say that. He said that you could actually eat, tree, eat of every tree of the garden except for one. So already, what we see is Satan ignoring these good gifts of God. right? These good things which he has provided for humanity. And tries to make God sound like this ruthless dictator God who actually doesn't care about you, or certainly makes anything that he says unreasonable or out of touch with reality. In verse 2, then, we see Eve is actually drawn into this conversation. She tries to correct Satan about what God actually did say, but she doesn't get it quite right. Notice she adds to God's word when she says, we can't even touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil lest we die. Now, God didn't say that. He never talked about not touching it. He said not eating it. So she was adding to God's word. 
But notice she also admits one of the words in which we see, and that is the word surely, when she says, lest we die. Almost like she's already doubting God's rightful justice for his commands. And lastly, Satan sees his opportunity then, and he explicitly denies God's word and says, you will not surely die. Notice, Satan doesn't forget the word surely. He adds it in there. But he calls God a liar. But more than that, he actually challenges God's goodness and his character in saying that if you, if you actually eat of it, it's something that's going to be better for you. God's actually holding back on you. Don't you see that? That God doesn't want you to have this fullness of life. He wants to prohibit you from having a good time. Eve, don't you see that God is really just this cosmic killjoy trying to ruin all your fun? I think we could all just say, that sounds very familiar. That sounds very familiar to our day. Because those are the same tactics we see today. And ones that we have all fallen prey to. Every single one of us in this room has believed one of those lies. Of did God actually say, is God actually good? Will it really matter if I do this or don't do that? We have all fallen prey to those schemes. Satan even says that they will be like God if they disobey him. Remember, though, Adam and Eve were made in the image and the likeness of God. We saw that back in chapter 1. And so one of the things that Satan does is he's constantly trying to get God's people to move and to seek things that God has already given you elsewhere. To take what God has given you in him and say, I think I could better find that somewhere else. Things such as identity, things such as purpose, value, comfort, assurance. See, what Satan loves to do is take these desirable things, these things that ultimately we will always find in God and say, no, 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 no. This actually will bring fullness to that. He's holding back on you. Even look at the middle of verse 6. Let me point something out to you. Because I've never seen this before in my, in my studies before. And I've, and I've walked through Genesis 3 a lot of times as a Christian. But I've never noticed this. It says that when Eve was looking at the tree, she was rationalizing what she was about to do. It says that she ate because she desired to be what? Wise. She desired to be wise. So she didn't eat the fruit. Doesn't say apple, by the way. It might have been an apple. We don't know. Okay, it could have been a plum. I don't think pluots were around then. But she didn't eat it because she was hungry. She didn't even eat it because she explicitly wanted to disobey God. In fact, it says that she desired to be wise. Now, church, is wisdom a good thing? Absolutely. We all desire to be wise. We all desire to make good choices. We all desire to do the right thing. But ultimate wisdom, like all the ultimates in this world, can only be found in God. Can only be found in God. It's why a Scottish writer named Bruce Marshall, I've got a slide for this, I want to show you. It's a pretty radical quote. He says this, The man who rings the bell at the brothel, brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. Now what is he trying to say there? 
saying what he is ultimately after can only be found in his creator. And he's using other means to get what only God can provide. Ultimately, he's looking for God. So what happens then? What happens as we continue in this narrative? Eve takes and eats. Adam takes and eats. It's the first act of rebellion in all of human history. That's why it's called the fall. The fall. When this perfect relationship between God and humanity is fractured. It's fractured. It's broken. And church, hear me on this. That means sin. Sin is not merely a mistake. It's not just slipping up. It's far more greater than that. Sin, how it's described throughout the rest of Scripture, is actually this rebellion against God. It's this treason against the King of Kings. It's not a mistake. Right? We can't water down sin like we, we tend to do. We have to call it for what it is. It's an act of rebellion. It's an act of turning our backs on God. Whether we intentionally did that or not doesn't negate the fact that that's exactly what's happening. And it doesn't take long, then, for this consequence to take effect. Look down at verse 7. It says that they were immediately aware of their nakedness. Right? They were immediately aware of their vulnerability. And what they do, they made fig loincloths to try to cover themselves. It was man's first attempt to cover their sin by their own works. Now, in verses 8 through 24, then, we get this second section of dialogue and action. But this time, instead of the, the dialogue and action driven by the words of Satan that only lead to chaos and only lead to death, this second section is driven primarily by the word of God where we see promise and hope with his words. So if you can, look down at verse 8. Look down at verse 8. Adam and Eve go into hiding, and they heard the sound of God amidst the garden. But not only were they hiding, but it, it actually points out that they were trying to hide from the presence of God, which is what sin does, church. It makes you want to hide. It makes you feel like you're not worthy. It makes you feel like there's something, shame brings this hide in that, that you can't walk in the light anymore. You can't walk amidst of God anymore. And worse than that, it actually makes you think that you can hide from God's presence using God's world to do so. Which is just a fallacy that we all fall into. But then in verse 9, what happens? God speaks. And what does he say? He speaks to Adam. He says, where are you? Where are you? Now, it wasn't because God couldn't find them. You know that, right? right? It's like, it wasn't a game of hide-and-seek. It's like when I play hide-and-seek with my kids. Like, I know where they're at. But I'll say, where are you? I, kn- I know where they're at. But why is God doing this? Right? What is it indicating? What is it communicating? I think it's communicating that God is not just after mere consequence, but he's after relationship. Even with a fallen humanity. And so he addresses Adam first. And why is that? Because Adam was given this leadership role to keep and protect the garden, including his wife. Including his wife. And so he's held responsible in a special way because of his transgression. 
And so God asks them questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, but once again, because he's after relationship, right? He's after communication. And so what happens during this communication? Well, the blame game starts, right? The blame game starts. Adam not only blames Eve, but also blames God in verse 12, which is not a good start, by the way. I would not recommend starting there. Yeah, we tend to do that too, don't we? God, if you would have just done this, then I wouldn't have done that. He says, the woman you gave me, she gave me fruit and I ate. Church, do you see how the influence of Satan is still at play? Right? Still doubting God's goodness, doubting God's character. Now, Eve doesn't take responsibility either and blames the serpent. And so what do we see there, church? Well, we see that this sin, this brokenness, this rebellion, has not only fractured the relationship with God vertically, right? Not only reflected, fractured that relationship vertically, but also horizontally. Now they're already challenging each other, sinning against each other, blaming each other which is a small foreshadow then of the work of Christ. I think even the symbol of the cross, where we see not only redemption goes upward, but also horizontally. Right? This, the cross of Christ is this foreshadow in fulfillment of what ultimately happened here in the garden in all the different elements that were broken. But then starting in verse 14, then the Lord speaks again. And he speaks to all of the parties involved, starting with Satan himself. And he says, cursed are you. The only person to be cursed directly. We'll see here in Genesis 3. Now, I don't have time to go into great detail about the curse of Satan. But basically, just to give you kind of the, 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 the big idea. The big idea is God tells Satan in this moment that you're going to be the lowly of low of all creatures. And more importantly, he says, your eternal destiny has been fixed. There is no redemption for you. All the days of your life, you will be like this. There's no hope. But then in verse 15... Right? Amidst that great condemnation for Satan, humanity doesn't get the same eternal destruction. Humanity is actually given great hope. Now, this is one of the most important texts in all of the Bible, church. Genesis 3.15. When God is still speaking to Satan here, he's still speaking to him, but he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Saying, where you tried to draw the fighting line, Satan, where you tried to recruit woman and humanity onto your side, I'm going to draw the fighting lines now between you and the woman. She's on my side. She's with me. And furthermore, he says that there's going to be no partnership between you two anymore. What you tried to start here in Genesis, I'm putting an end to today. Ultimately. And then he gives this promise at the end of verse 15. He starts talking about the seed, or it says offspring. Both are good translations. 
He says, more importantly, between your offspring or seed, between your seed, Satan, and the seed of the woman, through the offspring, Eve is going, through her, Eve is going to partake in this great battle. Through her offspring, there's going to be a great battle. And he speaks of a he, a new character is introduced. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So all of a sudden, God is speaking of this other person to come, this, this seed of Eve. Now, theologians refer to this, Genesis 3.15, as what is known as the Proto-Evangelion, right? It's Latin for the first gospel, the first declaration that someone was going to come to right the wrongs of sin in this world. That someone was going to come to undo what just happened at the beginning of Genesis 3. That someone was coming. And this narrative of seed to come is going to be really important as you, we continue to read Genesis, but also to read the rest of your Bible. Because we'll see this play out where God is constantly talking about this seed to come. This seed that's coming through different lines. Clarifying, even if you read through what are known as the covenants that you'll see in Genesis or Exodus and elsewhere. These covenants are a further clarification of who this seed is. Who is this one to come? Right? So God, even amidst great tragedy, great sin, great rebellion, he's saying, but I promise there's good news coming. I'm not done here. I'm not raising the white flag at all. Ultimately, we'll see that this seed is further clarified in the person and work of Christ, of Jesus Christ, where he is the seed that is promised. And even the act of Jesus on the cross, right, is this fulfillment of what we see in Genesis 3.15. Where on the cross, Jesus was surely bruised. He surely had pain. But yet he also delivered the death blow to Satan because he took away Satan's greatest tactic. Because what is Satan's greatest tactic is that God can't love you anymore. He can't love you because you're sin. You can never be right with God again. What the cross does is declares that you can. The cross declares that you can because someone has taken on that shame and that guilt in which we all deserved. But notice that the seed to come, it's promised unconditionally. Right? There are no conditions put on the promise. There's no conditions put on Eve or even Adam saying, if you do this, if you make this, this life perfect and worthy, then I will send the one to come. It's unconditional. It has nothing to do with humanity. It has everything to do with God. It's why actually many theologians actually refer to this, um, Genesis 3.15, this promise as what is known as the covenant of grace. As the beginning covenant of grace, where God is displaying that he works by grace. Now, grace is getting and receiving something that you don't deserve. Right? It's a gift of God. And so we see this beginning of this covenant of grace in which God will continue to clarify and pour out on his people. To, by the way, every single one of us in this room, then, are here because of grace. Not because we did anything right. Not because we figured it out. But because God sent his son. Because God has redeemed us through his work on the cross. Now, for the sake of time, I want to just continue to move uh, to 
what God says to Adam and Eve in this section. But I don't want you to move past Genesis 3.15 in many ways. I would even encourage you this week to just to think through how amidst great pain and sin and suffering, God was present amidst it. All right, well, let's, look, let's continue to look what God says. He starts with Eve. He starts with Eve. And he says that the consequence of her sin, by the way, Eve is not cursed in the way that Satan was. The consequence of the sin for the woman will be childbearing. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean like there's going to be pain in giving birth, even though I think there's probably aspects of that. But really what the wording is trying to communicate is that there's going to be heaviness to child rearing for you, Eve. There's going to be this deep emotional pain from being a mom. And I would say probably every mom in this room could probably attest to that. That some of the most challenging days as a mom was not the day that you gave birth. But maybe the days where you had an experience this heaviness with your kids. This heaviness of worrying about them. Wanting them to be healthy, wanting them to grow into maturity, hating how you saw the effects of sin even fall on their own life. And what God is saying, there's going to be heaviness to being a mom. Because you're going to experience being a mom in a broken world. God even tells Eve that there will be brokenness in marriage and trust, which we also can attest to. Now, to be clear... Even with the fall, God doesn't take away those good things that he gave Adam and Eve in the creation order. He doesn't take them away just because sin came into the world. He he does acknowledge that there's going to be aspects that are going to be really hard. There's going to be aspects that are challenging. Furthermore, to Adam, he tells him that his creation orders will be affected as well. Right, The ground in which he was called to work and to keep will now be cursed with thorns and thistles. That his work, although good, will be challenging. It will be hard. And even the sweat of his brow, even as he pours out all that he has, right, to provide for his family, what's ultimately going to happen in the end? Death. He says, from dust you were made to dust you will return. A reminder that all sin has the rightful punishment of death. The wages of sin are death. Now, so far, we've seen a lot of bad news. Some good news, but a lot of bad news. But it's not all bad. And so let's look at verse 20 here. I want to show you a couple of things as we, we close out. In verse 20, we see man finally name his, his wife. His wife. She, he calls her Eve. Eve, which means... That she is the mother of all living. Which I actually believe then Adam, hearing this promise, hearing this proto-evangelium, hearing about this seed that was going to come through the line of Eve to bring fullness of life again, Adam named her Eve because he had believed what God had said to his wife. He believed in the promise. That's why he named her Eve. Believe that the promise of life to come, the promise of redemption, was going to happen. And even before they're banished from the garden, we see in verse 21 something actually really, really special. 
but really it's a synopsis of what God has been doing since verse 8. Because what has God been doing since verse 8? God's, and this is really important, church, God's fundamental response to human sin and failure is what? Is it to throw judgmental lightning bolts from heaven? No. God's fundamental response to human failure and to human shame is to pursue a relationship and draw them out of that shame. To draw them back into right relationship with him. It's his fundamental response. It's what he does for all of us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, or you're not quite, quite sure where you're at, this is what I would implore to you. That not only is this the God of Genesis, but this is the God of everything. And God knows your shame. He knows your sin. He's not surprised by it, just like he wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve. But yet you are here because I think he is pursuing this relationship with you, drawing you out of that shame, out of that condemnation, in order to behold what God has done. And primarily, what has God done through the person and work of Christ? Because he wants what Adam and Eve, what he did for Adam and Eve to be true of all of us. That we see that God covers our shame. God allows us to come to him and to admit that he is not only God and Lord, but also Savior. Because look at verse 21 again. It says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And clothed them. So what God does is he replaces their feeble attempt to cover their own sin. Remember, I just took what was available to them, these, these fig leaves, tried to make these loincloths. But they were inadequate. They were inadequate to cover their sin. Much like everything that we do to try to earn this righteousness with God is inadequate. So what does God do? He provides for them directly. By killing an animal. Meaning a sacrifice had to be made for the covering of sin. An innocent animal had to die in order to achieve the skin in which he gave Adam and Eve. That's a picture of the sacrificial system to come. But ultimately, it's a picture of Jesus himself, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, who was the last imperfect sacrifice for his people. Do you see how Genesis 3 has these echoes and these underlying currents of these promises of God that he will bring greater fulfillment, greater clarification to, to the rest of the Bible? That's why I said Genesis 3 is an important text for us because it lines out the road in which all of humanity is going to walk, but also lines out the road in which God himself walks in his redemption to his people. It's pretty amazing stuff. I don't know if you guys are Excited. I'm excited. You guys just, just, you guys just sit there. It's okay. <laughs> now, before I end, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. There's one other thing I want to highlight to you about this ultimate fulfillment that we see in Christ. One more thing that I, I, I was pointed out to me by this British scholar named Derek Kidner. And how he was talking about how evil does not win in the end. And he points out that the words of condemnation, right, the very words in which brought the great sin into the world, the original sin that fractured everything. Remember those words? What were the words that Satan wanted us to do? Take and eat. Take and eat. Eve took and ate. Brought sin in. Adam took and ate and brought sin in. Those words of condemnation, those words that led to sinful rebellion, guess what? 
God redeems those very words for us as Christians. Because what did Jesus say at the Lord's Supper when he inaugurated this dinner, right? This, this meal in which we were to remember Christ, in which we do as a church right here on the first Sunday of the month, when we take communion. We recite the words of Jesus that say, take and eat in remembrance of Christ. So the very words that brought condemnation in the past, God says, no, those are the words now that bring salvation. Those are the words that reflect what I have done. Evil never wins in the end, church. And so even though we experience that still to this day, right, even though we have forgiveness of sin, we know that there's still a final defeating of sin and death to come, we recite those words, take and eat to each other to simply remember that the promise of God will never fail. And we can take heart in that, church. All right, let's go ahead and end in prayer, and we'll respond. Well, Father, I'm, I'm thankful for just another, another moment where we can just behold your glory. Behold what you have done. God, I want to be honest that the sin of Adam and Eve, not only was that transgression passed down to me and every other person, but I also willfully have done the same. I have believed this lies. I have turned my back on you. I have believed that there's something better than you in this world. And me, just like Adam and Eve, were in need of a promise of redemption. And God, I'm thankful that that promise of redemption that we see in Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled, has been inaugurated, has been achieved through what you did on the cross, Jesus, and will one day be fully consummated with your eternal reign. But we can walk out of here, Lord, today knowing in the way that you respond to broken sinners like me is to pursue them and to bring them out of their shame because of you. So, Lord, it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.